Well, this morning, it's uh, my privilege to open God's word again for all of us. And this morning's a little bit different than usual. I'm committed to kind of being a one-note Charlie and just going line by line through scripture and through books of the Bible. We've been going through Hebrews for uh, some time. We'll be into that again in the fall, but this summer we're in more of a topical series of passages and themes that are on our hearts in particular. And in a couple weeks, I'm going to be traveling to the East Coast to do a men's retreat. And it's on the theme of winning the war within, or for this morning, fighting the war of personal purity and holiness. And it's for the men, but I decided to study for the opener of that conference and give it to you first. And so when I was with my family down in Homer, and I'll allude to that later in the sermon, but uh, when I was down there, I took some mornings on the Homer spit out in the beauty of creation and typed this together and, and pulled my thoughts together on holiness and how important it is for the Christian life. Because if you don't win the war within, you're always fighting against yourself, your conscience, your own ability to discern reality because you're stuck in a losing battle instead of fighting your flesh and seeing victory. And hopefully this time in God's word will help you. I think this is a one-parter this morning. It could turn into next week as well. We'll see. Well, I was uh, last week in Homer, but then I went um, quick for um, kind of a quick mission down to uh, Southern California, suffering for Jesus down there. The weather was better here than there, by the way. But uh, I had some time at uh, Grace Community Church with the men and with John MacArthur, and it was, uh, it was a good time. Um, we also, uh, the group that was gathered got to all go to a Dodgers game, which, uh, I like the Dodgers pretty well and they're doing well this year. But one of the things that was special at the beginning of the game was they honored a world war II veteran and put him on the big screen. And, you know, you just sort of feel good about that. Don't you? Everybody clapped and stood up and honored that veteran, but it got my mind thinking in terms of this morning's sermon and what it means to be a Christian soldier, a Christian veteran, a Christian warrior, like a World War II veteran. But then I began to think, I wonder what it would be like to honor a World War I veteran if one of those men was still around. And there actually was an article about the last World War I veteran. It was in the Smithsonian.com um, website. It was titled World War I, 100 Years Later, The Last Doughboy of World War I. And it was the last in our country's World War I veteran named Frank Buckles. And he died, uh, you know, he, had, he hadn't died when the article was written, but he died um, February 27, 2011 of natural causes. Imagine that he was 110 years old, the last World War I veteran. Frank Woodruff Buckles. Let me tell you his story, what, why he was special. He went visiting um, the Kansas State Fair in Wichita in the summer of 1917 and went to the different recruiting stations at the fair. So first he went to the Marine Corps recruiting booth and tried to enlist in World War I. He said, the world is interested in this war, so I'm interested in this war. But Buckles was only 16 years old. So he's just 16, and the recruiting sergeant, probably realizing he was young, said, you need to be at least, well, 21 to join the Marines, which was a fib in his own right. Um, but Buckles, undaunted, passed to another booth. He went to the Navy recruiter. They said, look, you can't have flat feet, which Buckles didn't. So, you know, you can't come in. But he was, again, undeterred. He wouldn't give up. And he went, um, he went to other recruiting Stations, And he went to Oklahoma City again to try the Marines. He was uh, turned down. He, the Navy turned him down. But then the Army, the Army was open. No commentary. I'm not trying to say anything by that. I have no idea, Cal Dunham. Anyway, all that to say, 
an army sergeant passed him on to a captain who asked him for a birth certificate. And he said, I explained that when I was born in Missouri, birth certificates were not a public record. Buckles recalls this. He said, it would be in the family Bible. And he says, you wouldn't want me to go back there and have to bring my family Bible down here, would you? And so they went, oh, all right, we'll take you. So August 1917, Franklin Buckles uh, joined 4.7 million Americans recruited or conscripted to the new American expeditionary forces. Uh, They're all gone now since 2011. And at that point, at that point, Buckles was still alive. He was one 107 at that point when the article was written. He was the last living American veteran of the Great War. So he went to basic and he went to Fort Riley uh, casual detachment. Uh, first Fort Riley casual detachment is what he joined and shipped out for England in 1917. And to Buckles' dismay... Um, He was held in reserve in England. He wanted to go to the fighting. He wanted to go to the theater of war in France at the time under John J. Pershing, who was the general known as Jack Black, commander of the Western Front. They were fighting in France, fighting the Germans. Buckles spent most of his time in England as a motorcycle driver and a courier. He would, he would bring people in a sidecar, shuttling officers to dispatching them to different places, driving the ambulance occasionally. He said, I let any person who had influence at all know that I wanted to go to France. So finally, after six months in England, Buckles managed to get himself to France, where he was assigned to escort an American lieutenant, a dentist, to Bordeaux. He was in the right country, but still miles away from the fighting. I think they were trying to protect him. As the war wound down, he continued to chafe at being behind lines. Buckles was still there when the shooting stopped, November 11th, 1918. It, the word claimed 8.5 million lives at, at that point. He said, I wasn't disappointed that the war ended but I would have liked to accomplish what I had started out for. Why do I bring this up? I, I bring this up because he had a mind for war. He had the heart and passion to enlist. It was a desire to see action. And even though he didn't see the kind of action he wanted to see, the heart, the mindset was there. It's the key to being a good fighter is your Mindset. President Bush, um, George W. Bush, recognized this World War I veteran and invited him into what Buckles called the Oval Room. He said, uh, he said, the president asked me, where were you born? And Buckles said, that's exactly what General Pershing asked me um, when Corporal Buckles, as a corporal, met him after the war. And why do they want to know where he's from? Because they're like, what kind of person is this? who at 16 is pushing to get into the battle. For the Christian life, the sooner you become comfortable with the fact that Christianity, to be a Christian, is to be at war, the sooner you embrace that reality with joy, things are going to happen. Bombs are going to blow up around you. Bullets are going to fly. I'm not saying we are gluttons for punishment, but the sooner you embrace the reality that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities, there is a war going on. We are to fight the good fight of faith. The sooner you'll be at peace inside, the sooner you will be able to grasp really what is going on and happening to you as a Christian. Life will begin to make sense if you take on the mentality of a fighter. It's the idea of how do you win the war within? Well, you win it with the same nobility and commitment that Buckles represented, but you do it as a true Christian. Defines the Christian life. The fighter mentality must be had. And it must be had especially, and I'm not just speaking to the men this morning, but men and women, you have to have a fighter mentality if you're going to win the war within. The fight for personal holiness. The the fight for being like Jesus Christ. The fight that's waged inside of you to lust, to blow it, to mess up, 
to sin, to go in your mind where you ought not go. Personal holiness, I want to make the case this morning, though, is a broad category in Scripture. Yes, you have the, if I can use a crass illustration, there are the tumors within the soul that are the lusting tumors. They're they're the, the moral failures or dynamics that are going on, but you can't just cut out one, two, or three tumors. You have to use biblical chemotherapy over your whole body. You have to deal with holiness on a broad scale and also in its parts, the parts and the whole. And on its broadest scale, the sooner you take on a fighter mentality in general, Realizing you are a soldier at war against real enemies in the main, the sooner you will be better equipped to fight the lesser battles inside the soul, which deal with personal holiness. Second Timothy 2, like nowhere else, introduces us into this fighter mentality. I'd invite you to turn there. Second Timothy chapter 2 lays out the mission of the church. In a few verses, this is what we're supposed to be doing as a body, as a church in local and in universal. This is what's supposed to be happening. Paul says to Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Stop there. Those verses are the military mindset and the military mission in sum and total. It's the nameless, faceless, gloryless mission of giving the word of God to someone who will listen to faithful people. Now, this is targeting the men, faithful men. It applies in general, though. It's discipling people who will listen, who are faithful, who have character, who will then take the baton and give it to the next person. It's glorious, it's nameless, it's faceless, and it's invisible. It's a lot like when you put sermons online and you have no idea who's listening to those sermons or on the radio or when you write a book or you write an article or you meet with somebody for six months and then they move away, which happens a lot here, right? There's an, there's an advancement, a global mission that's playing out according to these verses, but it comes down to having a military mindset where you're willing to, verse 3, share in suffering. It's a suffering mission. It's a mission that requires discipline. If you ask any athlete who has won a championship, i.e. like the NBA finals that were just played and you know, the lesser team won. No, I'm just kidding. No, uh, the Raptors won. And I'm a fan of Kawhi Leonard. When he was interviewed, he said what every champion says, nine out of 10 say at the end of winning a championship, what do you attribute your success to? And typically it's two words that spill out of any athlete who's won a championship's mouth, hard work, hard work. Work. It's a life of hard work suffering where you're giving the word of God out with risks. Well, there's three identities that capture this mindset. One is the soldier. One is verse five, the athlete. And then verse six, the hardworking farmer. Let's look at the soldier first. The soldier is known for his disciplined focus. He's solely Focused on the mission, verse 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim, that's a focus word, is to please the one who enlisted him. His focus is vertical. His focus is one of aloofness to what's going on around. He's focused. He wants to get the job done. Second, you have the athlete 
An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. That's uh, not only focus, but it's integrity. Someone who wants to win the right way. Someone whose focus is on being obedient in God's word. You're not doing it in a rogue way. You do it with integrity. And then finally, the hardworking farmer. So focus, integrity, and hard work. This person, it is the hardworking farmer, verse 6, who ought to have the first share of the crops. What does that mean? That means that that farmer or that picture of Christianity is someone who is so consumed at their task that they're not even concerned with eating. They're not even concerned with the benefit of what they're doing. That They have to be reminded to take some of the crops for themselves. It's someone who is consumed by the work. Someone who has to be reminded to reap what he or she Sows. It's a hard mission. Discipline equals focus, integrity, and work. So does it take this level of intensity really to just be a Christian at all? Or are you, let me ask you this question. Are you a happy Christian? And don't answer out loud. But if you're not a happy Christian, it usually means that you're not all the way committed on this level. And the reason is this. It means that you are being assaulted by enemies. It's like being bullied in school. Are you a happy kid in school? Well, if someone's bullying you, then you're not happy. If Satan is bullying you, if your flesh is dominating you, and you're just chalking up fails, Satan, your flesh, the world, it it seems too good. And it's this living contradiction in your soul where you want Jesus, but you want the world. And you know that you want the world. Secretly, you want the world all the time. And so your life spins back on you and you're not happy. So does it take this kind of focus, this level of commitment to be a true Christian? Well, J.C. Ryle, who wrote really the best book on holiness and sanctification called Holiness, uh, he, he makes the case that knowing your enemies is the key to fighting your enemies. In a chapter in Holiness called The Fight, he points out that we're against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And J.C. Ryle, he's one of my heroes. He was kind of the final phase of the Puritans. He was in the late 1800s, lived to 1900 and died at the ripe old age of 83 as the Bishop of Liverpool. He was the Bishop there for 20 years. He had served for 39 years in country parishes in England as a Victorian evangelical. He was fighting the hyper grace movement of that day, which was the Keswick movement, the let go and let God next level Christianity. You either got it or you ain't got it. And he said, no, he said, Christian sanctification is not an experience where you go to another level or an epiphany where you say, oh, it's all grace and I don't need to obey. That's not what, that's not Christianity. Christianity is saying, yes, Lord, you are my superior and I am your soldier. I am your athlete and I am your farmer and I'm committed to hard work for your glory. It's not hard work where you're earning your salvation. It's just the hard work commitment that comes out of being saved. Work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's work in your work, and that's sanctification. It's not salvation. Salvation is God did it, period. But when God does it, he does it right. And then we work and God works in harmony, and we grow, and we're happy in that growth, but it's hard. That's Christianity. And getting this down is the foundation for fighting your own sin. Ryle was great. He, I'm going to quote him a few times. He was six foot four. He was a cricketer. He was Oxford's cricketer captain. He was one of the top scholars of Oxford. He was known for energy, brains, vision, drive, clear-headedness, and kind-heartedness. He had no inhibitions. He had a, a really strong personal aloofness to distraction and he was salty in his speech and he gave hammer bloke rhetoric when he spoke and when he wrote he was a pamphleteer he wrote probably the best little pamphlet on young people growing it's called thoughts for young men he's good but in his chapter the fight 
he talks about war and how war fascinates people. It's intriguing. And we know that the civil war, you have civil war buffs. You have people who are all about World War II and celebrated 75 years since D-Day. People are involved in what's happening with nuclear armament, disarmament, modern drone warfare. It's all fascinating, but the spiritual war should fascinate us more because the stakes are higher and the stakes are eternal. They're eternal. They are determinative in how we fight or do not fight. And as a Christian, you are a fighter, either a good fighter or a very bad fighter. Ryle says in his chapter, he that would understand the nature of true holiness must know that the Christian is a man of war. If we would be holy, we must fight. So I'm going to make a point this morning. It's that true Christianity is a fight. First Timothy six twelve: fight the good fight of faith. The moment of conversion, says Ryle, to the moment you die, you are at war. So the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let's just break that out to understand what true Christianity is. True Christianity is fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. John Owen said, you will be killing the flesh or the flesh will be killing you. Modern day vernacular, kill or be killed. Let's make it practical. You have to win the war within men so you can be clear-headed and live. Women, don't tempt people with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Don't be tempted towards passive, passive resignation towards those categories. All of these enemies apply to both. Ephesians 2 is where you understand and see the world, the flesh, and the devil. If you would turn there in your Bibles, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where we're dead in our trespasses and sins. How is that described? In which you once walked following the course of this world. So you have the world following the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are the temptations that Satan used against Adam and Eve in the garden. And these are the same temptations Satan used in the wilderness with Christ. What does it mean to fight your flesh? Well, you just need to know that you've got flesh. We're going to start with that category that is live. And if you underestimate your flesh, it will be eating you up. It's unstable like water. You're never going to be free from your flesh. It's, it's the principle of remaining sin in your life even after you are converted. Before you're converted, your flesh dominates you. It drives you. After you're converted, the flesh is it's, it's residentially living within you. You can't get away from it. Not until glory. So you got to accept it. You have to fight it. I had a high school wrestling friend that I kind of idolized and he was a champion. He became a Navy SEAL. He is now a motivational speaker. And in an interview, he defined himself as someone who willingly put himself in miserable, miserable circumstances while loving every minute of it. That's kind of like fighting your flesh. You just take it on as a challenge. Mark 14, 38, Jesus said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. First Corinthians 9, 27, but I discipline my body to keep it under control. Romans 7, 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Galatians 5, 24 those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions. Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Can I give you a tip on how to do that? Yes or no? No, okay, yeah. When you're tempted, and you are someone who is being tempted in your flesh from the inside, you need to remind yourself of who you are because we need to be who we are and just say, I'm a Christian. I don't do that. Talk to yourself. You don't have to tell that. You don't have to talk out loud to yourself in front of people. It could be spooky, but you might. 
I can't do that. I can't go there because I'm a Christian. I'm blood bought. And I'm going to take that sin and starve it. It's there. I want to eat it. I want to feed my flesh with sinful cotton candy, but that will hurt me. And so I'm going to starve it. John Owen talked about how it's like we nail our flesh to the cross and it wriggles and, and dies. We're crucifying our flesh and our minds. We need to. The world is the temptation ground for our flesh. The world is on the outside and our flesh is on the inside and the world will incite our flesh. It's like watching TV carelessly or movies carelessly or humor carelessly, listening to bad things carelessly, letting your eyes wander carelessly. They're the lures of James 1 that, that dangle in front of us where our flesh wants to, like, like a, a pike you know, in the weeds that wants to go out and bite it. And catch you up short and mess you up. And so you have to starve the world from your own appetites. You have to say no to the world. This is another Ryle quote. The love of the world's good things. The fear of the world's laughter or blame. The secret desire to keep in the world. The secret wish to do as others in the world do. And not run into extremes. See the rationalizing of this quote, you know, just a little bit, just a little bit. All these are spiritual foes or enemies which beset the Christian continually on the way to heaven and must be conquered. James 4 says friendship with the world is at enmity with God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is your subtext. You tell yourself, 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. Why am I spiritually dry? Because I love the world. Galatians 6, 14, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me. You say I've been crucified with Christ. Also Galatians 2, right? 1 John 5, 4. Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, there's a final foe. So we have the world, and we have our flesh, and then we have the devil. And the devil is using your flesh and the world all the time against you. And the number one thing that you could do to harm yourself spiritually is to ignore the devil. And basically argue that he really isn't after you at all. You're not worth his time. He's really not a real being. The enemy is completely underestimated when you tell yourself things that let your guard down regarding the devil. But he's a lion. He's stalking you like prey. He wants to rip you up. He wants to mess you up. He wants to divide your family. He wants to divide your friends. He wants you to believe false things. He wants to twist scripture. Those are the fiery darts that are being launched at you regularly. Whether they're dispatched by his minions, who cares? Satan's after you. The Bible says in James 4 to resist Satan and he will flee from you. I take that literally. He wants to ruin your soul. He wants you to become superstitious. He wants you to become mystical. He wants you to become subjective and not objective. He wants you to believe that all roads really do um, lead to heaven. He wants you to believe that miracles really were not literal in the Bible. He wants you to, to, to believe that there are sort of other worlds out there and there's a broader, bigger picture than the redemption story that's centered on who we are and how for God so loved what the world that he gave his only begotten son, that God's great plan and mission is every tribe, tongue and people from this world. Jesus died for the world. Um, you know, he wants you to believe in evolution. He wants you to, to obscure reality. He's doing all of these things and launching all of these false ideologies, false teachings to take the edges off the gospel. He wants you to believe in hyper grace where, you know, it's all the gospel. It's all grace. It's all grace. And it's a distortion of what the true gospel is, which is being transformed by the truth so that you can obey by the power of the gospel, not a obedience less gospel job said job 17 
where the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, Simon, behold, this is Jesus talking. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. John 8, 44, Jesus to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. He wants to lie. Immorality is okay. That's what he says. It won't hurt you. It won't wreck you. If nobody knows about it, then it's fine. Those are all lies. Those are all distortion switches that mess up your ability to think clearly. Ephesians 6, we're supposed to put on the whole armor of God. Why? Because we're standing against the schemes of the devil. We need all of that armor. We need to be sober-minded, watchful, 1 Peter 5, 8. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. People say, well, the devil is just for unbelievers. He can't devour us. He can mess us up. Otherwise, we wouldn't be warned in verses like these to be alert and sober-minded about what he can do to us. Let's not test God on this level. Let's not start talking to Satan like Eve did, right? Let's not have that kind of discourse with the devil and convince ourselves that it's all okay when it's not. It's a daily battle, keeping Satan from infiltrating our hearts. It's not just a one-day battle, it's daily. This reminds me of a story when I think of how Satan can attempt to infiltrate our house, our heart, our temple, Uh, When Judy and I lived in Little Rock, Arkansas, we had a house built there. And um, to save money, we didn't put blinds up downstairs right away, upstairs and downstairs. And so we didn't hang blinds. That That was a fail, okay? Because it basically was a new house that looked unoccupied with sort of window stickers. And, you know, you just, you know, we were, we were prey at that point and we were preyed upon and at midnight, the doorbell rang, just ding, dong, ding, dong, ding, dong, bam, bam, bam. And I'm thinking, it is what I think it is. Somebody's here to check to see if anyone's home and break in. So I'm halfway down the steps before I realize what I'm doing, you know, hollering at the door. And uh, I looked and the person was peering in that little window by the door, the faces there. You know, it's like the horror story of being like 10 years old and seeing that, right? I was a little older than that at that point. But I thought I recognized the face. I thought it was a gal in our church that that Judy and I had ministered to she and her husband. And I thought she was in trouble. And so I, you know, Judy's coming down, you know, what's going on? I'm like, oh, go down there. It's such and such. And so she opens the door and it's this lady who's stoned out of her mind with, um, you know, kind of gang-like clothes. And and, uh, Judy's like, whoa, shuts the door. But that person didn't leave right away. So, you know, she's kind of playing a game with us and we had to shout her away from our house. And ultimately she left. Okay, crisis averted, go back to bed. So we go back to bed. And instinctively, you just, you know, every, every clinking glass or every air condition, you know, that's, that's, that's coming on, you know, they're coming after you at that point. So I'm, you know, an hour later, I pop up. And, and I'm looking out the window and I see her across the street in this wooded um, yard and she's got her cell phone and she's peering in the house across the street. So just to finish the story, I, I call the cops. I mean, the whole point is Satan's doing that. Okay, that's the point. But I call the cops. I'm on with dispatch. The cops going by and I do the dumb thing. The dispatch is saying, stay in the house. And I'm like, no, the, the police officer's missing the person because she tucked in in an alcove. And so I ran out there. I know. I'll, I'll be rebuked later by certain ones of you. But I was pointing out, and so they, they caught her and took her away. But um, Satan stalks us like that. We've got to be aware. 
And the stakes are high and higher than just having your house broken in to or even physical harm. The Duke of Wellington during Ryle's time, he was a general in England. And when he was serving as a general, he said, in time of war, it is the worst mistake to underrate your enemy and try to make a little war. We are to Second Timothy 2, again, share in suffering as a good soldier. Jesus said, do not think I came to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. We're to war the good warfare, 1 Timothy 6.12. Fight the good fight of faith. Why? Because we're to take hold of eternal life. That's a very powerful phrase. We're fighters. Why? We're fighting for the perseverance of our own souls. We're keeping going. Now, God saves us once and for all, but we're called to march toward heaven. And as we march, other people march with us. It's taking hold of eternal life. It's all that to say one thing. It's a Christian war that we're engaging in. Sports are like this. That's why athletics are mentioned in 2 Timothy 2, being an athlete. The the athlete's marathon race or... You know, Paul talking about wrestling, being a wrestler or a fighter or a boxer. All of these motifs are saying the same thing. It's the same mindset. That's why the Native Americans um, call sports the little, the little brother of war. It's the little brother of war. You have to be a fighter. True Christians are fighters. You say, what if I don't feel like I'm a fighter? Well, that's not a good thing. You should have at least something inside you that... Is not right. You go, I've got some flesh I need to deal with. And I'm not indifferent to it. Now, you maybe have been indifferent to it, sinfully so, and just kind of laid back and allowed yourself to go and sin, but you need to kill the sin inside you. Metaphorically speaking, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Rip the eye out, metaphorically speaking, but it's true. It takes that kind of violence to deal with our flesh. And if you have an inclination to do that, then praise the Lord for you. It means you're truly a Christian. If you're indifferent, you should examine yourself. People who are involved in church discipline or who are under discipline, often we think that's so harsh, but it's not harsh because typically someone who's under discipline is indifferent to the process. They don't care. They don't care. And you've got to bring the force of the church and the accountability of the church to wake people out of their indifference. John 4, I mean, James 4 again Verse 5 says, he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Isn't that awesome? Isn't it great? I'm indifferent. I haven't been fighting very well. I need this wake-up call. And the Holy Spirit's on you, right? On you. Quickening your spirit to say, yeah, I want to fight. It's the Christian life. There's another main battlefront I want to just touch on, another arena, and it's the arena of the mind. All satanic attacks are to the mind. And you can connect that to the appetites. I just want to point out the attack that's given to us in Genesis 3, where Eve was being tempted. She got into the dialogue with the devil where he said to the woman, verse 1 of Genesis 3, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the, in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, in the middle, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, oh, you won't die. You will not surely die. You'll be fine. And guess what? And I'm, kind of reading the point from the white spaces here. It's as if Satan is saying, God, he's holding out on you. You could be like him. You can think like him. You can rule like him. And you can have anything you want. And what he told you not to do is what you absolutely should do. 
to get what you deserve, what God's withholding from you. That's satanic. And that's exactly the same lie, lying train of thought that Satan whispers into the heart to say, you're not going to die for that. And they didn't immediately physically die. And that's a incredible picture of how sin is. You think you got away with it. You think you're fine. And then it's coming and you live in fear of the judgment that's going to come. So when the woman saw, verse 6, that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and also she gave it to her husband who was with her. Satan snares the appetites. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. It's the world, the flesh, wanting something that the world is holding out there that's attractive, It's the satanic lies of the devil all coming together as one horrible trifecta. And it comes down to our pride. People come in the name of Satan and sell a false gospel, a candy-coated Christianity that says Christianity has no suffering, has no enemies, has no fight, has no hard work, no discipline, nothing. That's Christianity. And guess what? That form of Christianity sells And the reason that false teachers sell it is so that they can pad their pockets, I guarantee you. Because what they're selling is a false gospel that says you can have Jesus and do whatever you want to do. You can have Jesus and you can have the world. You can have Jesus and you can feed your flesh. But you can't have it both ways. You have the gospel and Jesus blesses you out of your commitment to him. 2 Peter Chapter 2 talks about false teachers. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh. They're like, look, you can have it both ways. And they're barely escaping from those who live in error. It's, It's just a falsehood. Their eyes are full of greed, full of corruption, full of adultery. And they're inciting this flesh. 2 Corinthians 2.17 calls it peddlers of the word of God. They're hucksters. They're door to door salesmen who are Satan's people. I was talking to a a gal, a lady, who was sitting next to me on the plane ride um, back. It was sort of on the last leg of the, or second to the last leg. We do a couple legs to come up here, right? So, um, So I was coming up and she was sitting there and this other older lady was sitting there and so, you know, you're, I didn't want to witness. I mean, frankly, I wanted to go to sleep. So I slept for an hour, (laughs) then woke up, and then suddenly it was a wide-open conversation. And these two ladies were just talking, so you know it's going to be a talking row, right? But I had earplugs, so I was good. Then I woke up and, and just joined in as if I'd been talking the whole time. And suddenly it went into Christianity and me being a pastor and et cetera, et cetera. And the young lady next to me said, you know... And she was a thinker and, and a songwriter. So she had, you know, she had some depth to her. And she goes, I just don't like Christianity because I don't trust organized religion. And I said, you know what? I don't like organized religion either. I sort of disarmed it like, yeah, I am right there with you. As a pastor, I hate organized religion. Now, what I meant by that, and I was quick to qualify, I like how the Bible organizes us as church. But organized religion is corrupt. And these hucksters, these peddlers of God's word, these abusers, and I was using all that language with her yesterday, they're horrible. And I hate it. And guess what? The apostle Paul in God's word, called him out and he totally agrees with us. She's going, what? I'm like, yeah, yeah. This is satanic stuff that Paul calls out and refutes and warns the church to run from and hate. And so all that corruption is real. And the only way you can make sense of any of it is to read God's word. So she goes, well, what version of the Bible should I read? I said, well, the English standard version, of course. I don't know. And she said, I'd heard of that. So who knows what will happen with that. But, you know, we shouldn't pull any punches. Paul didn't. He said in 2 Corinthians 10, we're not 
waging war in the flesh. Not waging war according to the flesh, verse 3 and verse 4, 2 Corinthians 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. What are those? All of those false lies, all those satanic lies, we can just rip them down. This isn't just destroying things in your own mind. It's destroying thing that, things that the world puts out there, that the world in the name of Jesus puts out there. We're supposed to tear those things down. I was tearing down a stronghold on a whatever it was, 747 or whatever. I don't know planes. Okay. Anyway, 737. I got it. I hear that witness. All right. Yeah, it was good. What's warfare like? Well, it's not drone warfare. It's not tank warfare where you have distance. In Paul's mind, warfare was hand-to-hand. It was daggers. It was swords. We have to fight like that. We have to dismantle the angel of light. I told you I'd tell you a Homer story, and I'm over time, so I'm going to tell you anyway. It's really cool. Um, so we went to the spit. And it was windy and awesome, and there were eagles swooping down on fish, and we were way too close to the bald eagles at the end of the spit, and, you know, just having a blast. But as time wore on, you got to save the day and say, hey, let's all go to Fens and eat pizza before we eat each other because there's eight of us in an RV. And um, so I said, oh, let's pack up in cars, and I had my Bronco and got in the Bronco, and... I started out of the Homer campground and it wouldn't go into gear and you, you know, burning the clutch out and doing great things to my Bronco. And, uh, and I was grounded at the spit. And what that did is it caused me to get in contact with the one couple that I know there, the one family and call them Christian people that I love and, and say help. And they said, call this person. He's the mobile mechanic that will help you. And somehow I got a hold of that mobile mechanic. And every time I was telling people that this person was on the job for me, they're going, I don't know how that happened on Saturday. But I got to know this guy and we crawled under the Bronco and I'm like, you don't care if I watch you do this, right? You know, and it was just fascinating. And he fixed, he, he fixed my problem. The, the stick and the tower was, the pin was messed up and he, he found a part, you know, it was just amazing. So he did this, but what was cool for me is I had been tipped off by the guy that told me about him that he had a really interesting survival story. And so I began to talk to him about this. And he said, I said, what happened to you on your snow machine? And when did that happen? It was like three, four years ago. He went on his snow machine and saying, look, I know every tree, every turn. I was born there and raised there. And I went out on my snow machine and suddenly there was a whiteout. You can't see 10 feet in front of you, five feet in front of you, total white out. And so at that point, you have a choice to make. You either dig a hole and set up, you know, bivouacked with your snow machine and your leeward side to the snow machine to block the wind. I learned all that when I was there. It's great. Um, or you immediately either walk out, you abandon your machine and see your trail and run back on your trail because that's all you've got to tell you where to go. Or you turn your snow machine and ride out. He didn't do any of that. He got off his machine and decided to stroll around and see where he was. Took matters into his own hands. By the time he circled back to his machine, guess what? Where's my machine? It's covered with snow. So he said, at that point, I was stuck to stomp snow and just walk and try to, in his best internal GPS navigate home. And he was just walking around aimlessly for two days and then day three. And he got to the desperation point where he did what you cannot do, which is you start to eat snow, which is basically saying, I'm calling it. And at that point, the search and rescue pilot on the final day with the final round and the final pass said, I'm going to go off the normal routine, off the normal grid pattern and go over here. Just somehow intuitionally went over there, saw him, drop supplies, chopper, helicopter, rather, coming in, rather. Yeah, um, and rescued him. But at the end of the story, I realized, and I didn't use this as a 
evangelistic moment. Maybe I should have, but I realized he didn't really get the point of what had happened to him and what had gone wrong. Yeah, horrible circumstances had gone wrong and miraculously he was rescued, but he didn't understand why it really went wrong. And then I go back to the family who lives in Homer and he tells me his survival story that happened just this last winter. And he says, listen, just like this guy, I went out on my snow machine. I've lived here my whole life and I know every tree and every turn and every trail and I'm out there. And the wife is sitting there and going, yeah, as he went out, it just looked bad. The weather was bad, you know, and it's kind of fresh snow. And I just gave him to Jesus because I knew something was going to happen. And suddenly he's riding around and he's trying to go somewhere, but he's crossing his own trail because another whiteout had taken place. So instead of him getting up, leaving his machine, looking around, taking matters in his own hands, he decided to be humbled in the moment and say, I need to find the trail, point my machine and go just back. And he did. And he used that as a life moment for him to evaluate his own heart, evaluate his family, evaluate his priorities. And was, he was working two jobs. He dropped a job immediately and just solely focused and turned it into a, a spiritual rescue and a spiritual growth story in his life. It was fantastic to hear that. If we aren't humble with the world, the flesh, and the devil, we'll be like scenario one, and we might not get out alive. We have to realize one wrong turn, one wrong situation, the whiteout is coming, and we have to humble ourselves and follow the biblical path for rescue. So perhaps you have, you say, look, I haven't been fighting. I haven't been doing well. I've been losing. Well, just stop, repent, do an about face, and come back to Christ. He's waiting for you with open arms. Come back to the church. Come into accountability. Come into transparency and become the fighter you need to be by God's grace. It's winning the war within. The kingdom of heaven has suffered, has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. You have to be violent with your sin. It's not great talents God blesses as much as likeness to Jesus. Robert Murray McShane said, a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. Let's all be holy ministers for the glory of God.